Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. On episode number 62 of The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking about land grabs and how the global energy picture is affecting investment strategies worldwide. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And today we are speaking first with Fred Pierce, author of the book, The Land Grabbers. And Fred is going to talk to us about his journey around the world in trying to find and understand this new phenomenon of land grabs. What's happening is these countries are actually setting up rights to farmland inside other countries so that even if there was a famine or uh, a serious food supply issue in that country, it would actually legally send the food back to, say, China or South Korea or whatever country had invested in the farmland. So it's a troubling new trend, and we're going to be talking about it today in our first interview. We then talk with Gregor McDonald, editor of TerraJewel, about why nuclear power isn't really a viable option. So let's jump into our conversation with Fred Pierce on global land grabs and how the desire for investment returns on the big piles of money that are out there in the world are starting to be placed into global farmland. In the localization, permaculture, and sustainability community, we've been talking about food security for many years. How has the investment community been dealing with this same issue? Well, they see it as an opportunity. They see rising commodity prices around the world. They think that a good way of cashing in on those high prices is buying or leasing the land that uh, they can grow the crops on. So they see this as an opportunity in a resource-constrained world to squeeze some extra profits out of higher prices. And it seems to make sense that buying land is a ideal way to make your money stay in a form that's usable. Uh, right now, we are in a derivative rich world where everything is bet upon and bet upon and to the ground, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So are we all land grabbers when we buy property? And should we all be buying land? Is that is that the best way to be putting our money? Well, I think it's a question of what the land is and what other claims there are on the land. The big problems in the developing world, particularly in Africa, but in parts of Asia and Latin America too, are that there are long-standing disputes and plain disagreements over who owns land, who has access to land, who lives on the land. In many African countries, for instance, the land is all formally in state possession. 
on the face of it, this is on behalf of the people. But the people who occupy the land, farm the land, uh, rely on the land for their livelihoods may have no legal title. In fact, typically don't have any legal title over that land. So it's in those kind of contexts that I think we're justified in using what is a pretty loaded term, such as land grabbing. This is not simply purchase of land or, or even leasing of land where there is unambiguous ownership and therefore there's a deal that both sides are party to. This is about gaining land, control of land over which other people with whom you're not talking have claims and I would certainly argue prior claims. So how big is this phenomenon? What are we talking about here in terms of scale? How many countries are involved? Who are the people who are buying the land and where are they located? It's hard to get an absolute grip on the statistics. There is no central repository of statistics on these things. It is fair to say that some, a half, two-thirds, something like that, of all the land grabs that are causing concern are in Africa. It's fair to say that dozens of countries are most certainly involved. The precise amount of land which is actually actively changing hands is harder to analyze. There have been some academics who've tried to do this, spent a lot of time and some money trying to come up with proper statistics and figures such as 200 million hectares, that's uh, 500 million acres have been suggested. And that's an idea, that's an area of land almost the size of Western Europe, huge amounts of land that we're talking about. But it turns out that their analysis is little more than a review of press clippings, uh, media reports of deals done usually between governments and would-be foreign investors. And it is not clear how many of those deals have been finalized, uh, what land specifically involves. Some of the deals, don't, they don't appear to have mapped the land in any detail at any rate. And how much of the projects have actually gone ahead in terms of people turning up with plows and starting to till the land. So my guess is that quite a lot of the projects that have been analyzed or have been tabulated may not go ahead or may not go ahead on the scale originally envisaged. But on the other hand, my analysis for the book is that there are a lot of projects that are going ahead, particularly in Latin America and parts of Asia, going ahead without any media coverage at all. So it's not clear that that figure of 200 million hectares or so is wrong, but we do only have a very hazy idea. We know there are some huge projects out there, 100,000 hectares and bigger projects where the land grabbers are on the land and are clearing the land and are at work and people are being thrown off their land. So there are big projects afoot, but the global scale is harder to assess. So there's no real way to know how much land is subject to these kind of deals that are going on because there's no central agency that tracks it and it's not like these governments are really reporting it. That's right. I mean, the World Bank's had a go too, and it came up with a somewhat lower figure of about 70 million hectares. But it admitted that it too was relying largely on media reports rather than the data that it might have expected to have got from host governments, for instance. But host governments turn out to be very unwilling to discuss these issues, largely because they fear criticism for what they're doing. 
this seems to be a kind of two land style ownership styles. We have the people who think of land as a communal thing that is shared between families and cultures and tribes. And we think of the Western style way of land ownership, which is the ownership and the plowing and the usefulness of land. What happens when these two kind of perspectives collide? I mean, is there violence? What happens? Well, they are colliding. In a sense, there's a, there's a sort of third form as well, which is sort of blanket state ownership on behalf of the people, which is the situation in much of Africa. But you do, it is a clash of cultures. It's a clash of ideas about land. Ideas about ownership and use of land are really often very different when there's collective ownership of land. It's a shared resource and there are often very complex cultural rules about how land is used, especially uh, sharing of pasture lands and that kind of thing, and forest lands too. And it is very different from the, if you like, private property notion of land that a corporation would hold to as being the dominant form of land ownership in the West. I mean, we still have common lands and state lands, but private ownership is the dominant form. And there, there are misunderstandings, at the very least, that, that arise over this, and frequently really strong clashes, especially when the communities who occupy land simply have no say in the decision about whether that land is leased out to an American or a Saudi or an Indian corporation. It's a recipe for trouble, and trouble there has been. So why is this global land grab occurring? Was it something that had to do with the food price spike in 2008 that started the land grabbing trend? Or is this just the result of a growing population? Or is this money that's just seeking returns that it can't find in other places? Uh, a mixture of all those, I think. The, the trigger for the big boom in land grabbing certainly began with the food price spike of 2007-2008, which made everybody much more interested in the potential of profits from land to grow commodities with fast rising prices. Since then, the prices have gone down and up and down, and they're up very high again. We're seeing a situation of great volatility, and that encourages a certain class of speculator to move in, thinking that there are good profits to be made quite quickly out of riding the the variability of prices and of commodities and interest in land. So all that's going on. But as I say, there's been an interest, I think, among speculators to move into some of these commodities and also commodity indexes and various various derivative abstractions of commodities futures in the last four or five years. That's partly a haven for money that it is looking for a safe home after the financial crisis of 2008. A lot of money that governments have tried to pump into the financial system in 2008 and since then have also found their ways into commodity speculation and along the way into buying up land that can produce the crop that people can speculate on. Yeah. How does the financial sector look at, at these deals? Are there actual firms that are specializing in looking at land as an investment vehicle? And if so, how are they managing these deals? Uh, yes, they do them in very different ways. Some of them are the old commodity brokers, the grain brokers who are looking to move back into um, ownership of land. They've largely got out of production and stayed in the trading side of things. But companies like Cargill and so on have had arms that are looking at moving back into land. Some are startup companies looking to raise money on the financial market sitting here in London. A lot of companies 
active in the city of London looking for finance for land-grabbing projects. And there's quite a lot of money sloshing around and quite a lot of people quite keen to do this. Now, they certainly talk a lot about concern about um, rising uh, world populations and a kind of resource crunch over land and water supplies, another issue, and the production of food. If you look at the prospectuses that many of these startup companies in particular put out to would-be investors, they talk in Malthusian terms about coming food crunch, coming resource crunch, the inevitability of rising food commodity prices in particular, and basically say to the people they would like to invest in them, look, you know, join the party. There's money to be made here. Any resource that comes into short supply, the price is going to go up. We're going to make a killing. I find it quite interesting coming from the environmental world, seeing how these environmental ideas, these Malthusian ideas about a kind of you know resource crisis in the world, are suddenly being taken up by the financial community in the city and of London on Wall Street and elsewhere as the core proposition behind their investment prospectuses. So many in the environmental community are talking about issues of Malthusian corrections and such and have been for so long. And so, like you're saying, it's very interesting to see the financial community using that same language. Are they going around to major investors or any sort of even smaller investors and giving presentations and say, hey, look, we're at the peak population and shit's about to hit the fan. And so this is how you're going to invest and make a lot of money. Is that really the language they're using? That's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're coming up, they're putting on their PowerPoints, the exact same graphs that the environmentalists have been using for, you know, three or four decades now. So there's a kind of sense of deja vu in here, but that's exactly what they're pitching. They're saying, look, the world's population is going to be at 9 billion by mid-century. More than that, the uh, number of middle-class people is going to be rising exponentially. The number of people living in cities is going to be rising exponentially. All these people are going to want food, and they're not going to be growing food themselves on their own farms. And if they're middle-class people, they're going to be wanting a lot more livestock. And livestock is much more resource-intensive. It requires more land to grow the fodder crops for the animals. So, um, you know, these are, these are all in their past PowerPoint presentations. It's exactly the same stuff that you'd have been hearing from Friends of the Earth, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. So you look back and corporations have been really doing this kind of land grabbing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why is it now becoming even more recognized? Why is it, is it because the population just is out of control? What's the reason? I think it's a perception issue, to be perfectly honest. We do have a sort of short-term problem with food prices. Speculators have moved in. A lot of people who know more about commodity markets than I do say that a large part of the price rise has been due to these speculative pressures. But there's also other uses for land. A huge amount of the U.S. corn harvest is something like 40% is now used for biofuels. And while no other country in the world has quite figures that high, a lot of grain crops are now being used in biofuels. A lot of land is being used for cotton plantations, for rubber, for coffee, for all sorts of non-food or certainly not essential food crops. So there are more and more pressures on land almost independent of the food demand. Um, so as I see it, you know, we're perfectly capable of producing enough food to feed eight, nine, ten billion people. But there are a lot of other pressures on the land and there are a lot of speculators moving into it. So for me, I don't think this is a fundamental limits to growth issue. I think it's more about how the way the market and the finance system is working. It's kind of creating shortages and creating rises in prices and these bring 
the potential for investors, for foreign investors in countries of Africa and elsewhere to come in and profit from things. And so quite understandably, and as you might expect, they're doing precisely that. The problem is the clashes that this creates. I'm not against, in principle, the idea of European or, or American investors moving into African countries and offering to invest and do development. Of course, you know, I'm in favor of that. The question is the kind of investment. And when they get into clashes with local communities over land, sometimes over water resources, sometimes over forest resources, these are very damaging clashes, and they're going to be bad for all sides. The investors probably don't know what they're getting into sometimes. So I'd like to back up for a second and explore a little bit how you got clued into this and how did you figure out that this was happening and, and write a book about it? Well, I'm, I'm a journalist. I've been uh, working on environmental and, and development issues for New Scientist magazine here in the UK and for other titles around the world for three decades now. So every two or three years, I look around for a big issue, if you like, to explore at book length as a journalist. And I make a point of traveling to places and interviewing. I'm not an academic though I try to use academic sources when I can, but just to research what's going on. And it did seem to me that come about 2009, there were a lot of reports in the media of land grabs going on and the new language of land grabbing. And I just wanted to get to grips with it and to find out what was going on, what were the origins for them, and you know, the kind of questions that uh, you're asking me today. How did this arise? What's sustaining it? Is it likely to carry on? You know, where are we going with this? Is it a new form of exploitation or just something which has already happened? And of course, you're right, corporations have been doing this kind of thing at a certain scale for a long, long time. You know, I live in the UK, the British Empire was the biggest European empire in the world. You know, we're pretty past masters at this kind of thing. But the context is a bit different when land grabbers are moving into independent countries and offering them the idea that their kind of form of foreign investment is going to bring economic development. And that's the sales pitch. When these guys, you know, if, they, if they're talking in Wall Street, they're talking about how we can make profits out of rising commodity prices. But when they're taking their sales pitch to African governments, they're talking about how this is a, a shortcut to economic development for countries that badly need it. I think there are serious questions about that. Either more likely, I think many of these investments to bring conflict and to deprive people of the means of making their own livelihoods, turning landowners into laborers. That's the big fear. So I had a lot of fun reading your book because it was so much about traveling to all of these different locations and seeing these projects and talking to the people in the, in those areas, the investors and also the people on the land who were affected. And that's so much the theme of our show of being an extra environmentalist and being able to change your mindset and uh, being able to step outside of those cultural boundaries that maybe you're always used to and go to other places and, and learn other ways of life. And so I'm wondering a little bit about some of the places and projects that you did visit that really stood out to you that thinking back on the book that really were highlighted for you and not to describe the phenomena as a whole from this, but really just some of the anecdotal stories from the specific projects you saw. There were quite a lot. I mean, I, I went to eight or 10 countries while researching this to see the scale of forest destruction in, in Sumatra in Indonesia and how forest communities are losing their land to these big companies producing paper and pulp. It was extraordinary. But perhaps the one example that showed me the extent of this was when I went to a little province in southwest of Ethiopia, really a long way from anywhere. There are only a couple of flights into that province in a week in Gambella in Ethiopia. 
back end of anywhere, really. I mean, it was just, you know, there were no big towns around. There was no anything very much around, but there were a lot of people on the land making a living in the bush from hunting and doing a little bit of farming and taking things from the forest and honey from wild bees and that kind of thing. Uh, fishing. You know, that was a kind of livelihood. And it was suddenly finding big companies coming in. One company had come in from Saudi Arabia and had taken over 100,000 hectares, a huge chunk of the province. And another company owned by an Indian had come in and are taking over even more. And they'd started plowing and they were, you know, fencing and putting in their airfields. And people were just being thrown off the land. And the local government was conniving at this. I met people in the forest who'd been told that they'd got to leave the forest. They'd got to go to the new villages being created by the governments. The government said they were there to provide facilities, but really they were there to move people off their land. And people were very, very distressed about this. You know, land for people in these areas is their whole life. They don't know anything else. Land is what the world is to them. And to remove them from the land and send them off to villages or cities or whatever is to destroy their culture and everything else as well. And it was very distressing to come across these instances of tribal groups, many of whom were pretty marginalized already and involved in conflicts with their national government, suddenly finding that they were in conflict with foreign corporations, with foreign workforces coming in as well. You know, I met people that I write about them in detail in the book, but individuals that I met there, you know, they just felt that their lives and their clan's lives were over. Yes, and it seems to me that as you take away people's lands and you're destroying their culture and opening up these societies and bringing in these new kind of technologies and new corporations, it really reminds me of an interview we did with Helena Norberg-Hodge who talks about how these corporations just destroy native cultures and they come into Tibet and these areas and, and she actually went in and learned the language and was able to talk to the people and, and see what it was like to have their land taken from them. They're supposedly given electricity to make their lives better, but it, in fact, it just destroys everything that they've built for the hundreds and hundreds of years. Are we seeing now in a new enclosure movement? And is this good for the world? This is something that is a positive thing. It's an enclosure movement, and it's going to have huge downsides for the people involved in it. Now, some people will say, well, we have to do this because for the long term, this is the way that land ownership is going to go. It's going to come into private hands, and we have to do this in order to feed the world and so on. I'm not convinced about that. The yields that these corporations achieve when they move in on these land are frequently no greater than would have been achieved by local smallholders with the same resources, there is a long tradition and a very successful tradition of smallholder farming in parts of Africa. Some of it is badly underfunded. They can't get their products to market and they lose their products because of pests and diseases and so on. But there's no reason why those can't be put right. In other words, what I'm saying here is that African countries badly need investment in their agriculture, but I'm far from convinced that the kind of investment that is going to deliver development for them should be this kind of agribusiness investment, bringing in lots of big kit to work the land and leaving people either as laborers on their own land or sent off to the cities because there isn't work for them. I don't think that that's the kind of economic activity that's going to genuinely deliver economic and social development for people in those circumstances. So yes, it is a kind of new enclosure movement. But as enclosure movements can and do have very bad consequences, especially for the people that get tied up in them. So I think really there are two arguments here, one of which is 
the economic argument that can this kind of agribusiness investment deliver development, and I think under most circumstances it won't. And the other is the justice argument. People's land, they should have a right that their land isn't taken from them. It may not be their land in the form that perhaps we understand in the West with lots of lawyers around and deeds and contracts and so on, but it is so far as they're concerned, their land. And why should outsiders be able to come in and take it from them? Everybody in the financial class realizes it's destroying society. That's why it's taking the money and running. That's why the bond market is going down. They know the game's over. They know that they've killed society. Now they're taking their money and they're buying farmland. They're buying houses all over the world. They're buying Picassos. They're going to live nice like lords and lord it over to the rest of society that they've killed as that society that they've killed sinks into poverty. Let's talk about something important. The company has handed you a gold-plated certainty, land grabs. The new gold rush. You fleece the world's poorest countries for the ground they're standing on. Easy money, I know. You buy cheap land used by poor people to feed their families and turn it into something worthwhile. Making us rich. Infrastructure and jobs. You promise these poor people and their governments the world. You don't have to go through with it. What happens to them? Who cares? You see them sitting next to you? They're going to be paying for your sports car? Pruning your hedge fund? There's the door! You walk that morality outside right now and you walk back in a man. Agriculture. You grow crops on that land and sell them to rich corporations back home. Resale. Finished playing farmer. You speculate to accumulate. Fence that bad boy off and sell when the prices are up, up, up. I bought land at four cents a hectare and I'll flip it for ten times that. I made a million dollars then had breakfast. What did you do? We tell the public we're feeding the world helping the poor, providing development, carbon credits, blah, blah. Truth is, we leave the conscience at the bar between martinis. One of the interesting things is whether or not real, which has these huge flavellos and these very poor people living, surrounding a city that's gonna host the Olympics. Tens of thousands of protesters sweep through Brazil's largest cities. With more demonstrations expected, what's behind the discontent? Uh, this is Estado newspaper from Sao Paulo. It says protests spreading all over the country. Politicians now uh, are the targets. And then finally, another big paper here in Sao Paulo. This is Folha newspaper. And this says thousands of people on the streets against everything with a big photograph of some of the protesters that invaded the roof area of the National uh, Congressional Building in Brasilia on Monday. If the Olympics are not held there because the city is unsafe, they just call it off, then it'll be a real wake-up call. Because those those are the cities that are going to go first. 90% of the people live hand-to-mouth, and when those people don't get to eat, they can't run back into the countryside where they came from. They're just going to have to scavenge, and they're going to scavenge from the 5 or 10% that still have something left. 
You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Fred Pierce about global land grabs. How is a country like Saudi Arabia meeting its food needs now, and how is it looking to supplement that with leasing this land in other countries? Well, the Saudis have for a long time been very worried about their reliance on food imports. Now, as a desert state with a fast-growing population, you know, they've got plenty of money. You know, they can buy the food if the food's on the market. But at times of crisis in the food supply system, such as in 2007, 2008, and perhaps again now, they've been very worried that the food simply won't be there to buy, won't be available on the market. Now, for 20 or 30 years, they've been trying to encourage agriculture at home by irrigation projects that rely on pumping up huge amounts of water from deep beneath the desert. Uh, One of the largest underground aquifers for water supplies in the world is beneath the Saudi desert or was beneath the Saudi desert because over the last 30 years they pumped up most of that water. The water tables have been going down and down and down. The cost of pumping has been rising and rising, and they're literally running out in places. So five years ago, they decided on a change of strategy. They couldn't carry on trying to grow their own crops by pumping water out from underground. And they decided that they couldn't rely on global markets either. So they were going to go in for land-grabbing schemes. So they've been doing deals particularly with fellow Muslim countries in Africa. So you go to Sudan or Senegal, or indeed Muslim countries outside Africa, Indonesia and so on, and Pakistan. They've been doing deals with these countries, usually involving private sector companies from Saudi Arabia, underwritten by the government, to go in and take over land to grow food specifically for export back into Saudi Arabia. That's the way Saudi Arabia is trying to meet, as many countries are, food security. That's a, a phrase that's been bouncing around a lot more in the last five years. And that's the reason why you know, corporations have their own reasons. They want to make money. That's the one reason they will go into land grabbing. But governments and government-sponsored projects are very much concerned with national ideas about food security. Uh, governments know that if food is in short supply and food prices start going up on local markets, governments themselves can be in trouble. One of the interesting things about the Arab Spring, uh, both in Tunisia and Egypt, is in in the early days, those demonstrations were not really about democracy or bringing down the leaders. They were about food. They were about rising food prices. In the months before the, or during the big riots and demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in Cairo in Egypt, food prices on the street in Cairo had doubled. People were angry about food and they were actually waving bread above their heads, you know, as during the demonstrations, they were making it very physically obvious that they were demonstrating about food prices. So governments around the world know that, you know, bread riots are, are a danger sign for governments. Bread riots bring down governments. They want to be very sure that there's going to be food available for the local people. And that is, from the government's perspective, a big driver behind this kind of the land rush, I think I would put it, going on around the world. If a country is underwriting a private citizen to actually go and buy land in a foreign country, and then that government of that host country decides not to export that food, 
who backs up that private citizen? Does the government who's underwriting the private citizen come in there and enforce some kind of contract? Or do they just lose that profit? It seems there's a lot of conflict that could happen with this kind of situation. Yeah. Politics is, in international law, trade agreements between countries, most of the power is with the foreign investor. Even if it's not written to the contracts that they have with the host governments, it is kind of underwritten in international trade law that they have rights to repatriate the food. So even, you know, if you're a land grabber in Sudan, even if there's a famine going on in Sudan, you would, legally speaking, have the right to take the food back to Saudi Arabia or wherever it might be, regardless of what the host government said. How that plays out might be a bit more complicated, but in legal terms, you would have high rights. And in general, a lot of the land is bought or is leased because it has good access to water. And again, even during a drought, the lawyers who talk about these issues say that generally speaking, the foreign investor has the first rights to whatever water may be left in the river or underground. So there are huge potentials for conflicts here. And you wonder how far in the real world land grabbers would try and push things. But the law would usually be on their side. Let's say we're a decade or two down the road headed towards that UN estimate of 9 billion people by 2050. And, you know, maybe we're at 8 billion people globally. And there are actually some issues with food scarcity and food riots break out in a country. And it turns out that a Chinese state owned corporation owns this certain patch of Ethiopia, uh, just for example. And then the food that's growing there, even though the population could be starving, that food would then get shipped off to China? Yeah, absolutely. I'm reminded of what happened during the Irish potato famine during the 19th century. Now, if your history is any good, you'll know that that the UK, that Britain ran the whole of Ireland at that point. And during the middle of that famine, when roughly a million people died because of potato blight in the potatoes on which most poor people in Ireland relied, in the middle of that, it became clear that huge amounts of food grown in Ireland by English landlords in Ireland was still being exported to the UK and to the other British colonies, in fact, even though people were dying. So there's historic precedent for how this can play out in the really the most unpleasant way. And I wouldn't predict necessarily that in the 21st century, we would allow a, a million people to starve while food was being exported from virtually their land. But it shows the kind of things that can happen and that people who own land and farmland do believe that they have a right to do whatever they want with that land, almost regardless of the circumstances of the people who are their neighbors. Now, we were talking at the beginning of the interview a little bit about the financial sector's role in this. Now, you actually went to the trading floor in Chicago and got to see how this was working. In your mind, how much of the global price of food is really due to dynamics of supply and demand and how much is driven by speculation? It's really very difficult to say. I think you certainly see that when there are food shortages created by, say, droughts in exporting countries. Australia has one of the world's largest grain exporters and has had a whole series of droughts that some years have cut its exports onto the global market very considerably. Ukraine's been in a similar position. India sometimes, which is actually a food exporter these days, and sometimes if there's a poor monsoon, those exports dry up. 
it's those times when food prices seem to surge. We've seen it again in recent months when the droughts in Texas and, and elsewhere in the US have dried up, grain supplies coming onto the global market. So you certainly see that there's an element of shortage of supply in this. But what does seem clear, I'm not an expert on what happens in the city, but I've read a fair amount about how financial community works and the evidence of people within the financial community themselves speaking at uh, congressional hearings and so on, is that speculation has been quite a big factor in the increased volatility of food prices. What you notice is that from the 1970s through to five years ago, food prices were really pretty stable, quite low, generally falling and remarkably stable. And since then, we've seen not only a rise in food prices, but a much, much greater volatility. You know, they double in price and then they halve again in price and then they triple and so on. And we've not seen that before. People in, in the financial world say that this is because speculators have moved in on the crop futures markets. Now, crop futures markets used to be kind of a rather sort of lazy, slow-moving part of the financial world, necessary because farmers needed investment up front in order to plant their crops and buy their fertilizer and so on. And they did that by selling in the future rights to those crops. So that's been a long-standing part of the agricultural scene. But suddenly, speculators were moving in. And there were new kind of products, commodity indexes, which mean that people are sort of changing the nature of the game and turning it into much more like a regular market, prone to big swings up and down in prices. And while I suppose we can cope with those kind of things in the world for maybe, you know, things like copper or, or even oil prices, you know, we, we can kind of handle that. But when you're talking about something as basic as food prices, and when you know that in large parts of the world, people are spending most of their income on buying food, you're talking about the lives of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of people. After all, if you spend 60 or 70 or 80 percent of your money on food and suddenly the price of food doubles, well, you're going to go hungry. So, you know, I think the real ethical questions about speculators moving in on something as fundamental as basic and something we need every day of our lives as food supplies. It's, it's chilling to me that people are speculating on the food futures of whole countries. I mean, I'm listening to you talk about it. And I'm envisioning these huge food riots in Ethiopia and all over Africa in parts of these poor countries that are just starving while their food is just being pumped out to other countries. What can people that are just listening to this interview do about it? How we intervene on the international markets is uh, a big ask. At an individual level, I don't think we can. I think we can ask and expect our legislators to be thinking about the governance of markets. You know, I mean, markets are not a force of nature. They are, are a, a machine, if you like, invented by humans in order to increase economic activity and encourage people to invest in things. And that's all very good. And I'm all in favor of that. But it is a human produced machine. It's not a law of nature. And we should be deciding what is socially acceptable, what we want to allow corporations to do, or where we want to draw the line. One of those areas where we may want to draw the line and, you know, legislators and other people have been and financial people have been talking about this is speculation in something as basic and as fundamental as the world's food supplies. Maybe we need a rather more constrained version of the market 
in order to do that. We see how this operates in a small scale. Every country that's ever had in the 20th century, certainly has ever had a big famine. You go to Ethiopia in the 70s and the 80s and Sudan and other parts of Africa. Every time there's been a famine, there's always been grain sitting in warehouses, usually controlled by a few individuals who are waiting for the price to rise, seeing how they can make a profit out of it. Now, that's bad enough when it's happening in individual countries during a famine. But if we're talking about that happening at the global scale, a few corporations potentially able to control global markets in foodstuffs, then I think we've got some asking basic questions about how far we want unbridled markets to control these kinds of things. I'm not saying the markets don't have a role. I do believe they do. But there do need to be some kind of legal limits on what happens. And I think as consumers, I think we, if we notice a company that we buy foodstuffs from, acting badly in the marketplace, then, you know, we take our custom away. But I think probably this is down to legislators and it's down to us asking congressmen and senators and others exactly what they're doing about these issues and what they believe the right way of regulating markets is. Part of the reason why these land grabs have been able to take place on such a large scale is because they're happening so far out of the public eye. And so I could imagine that uh, governments or investors or whomever is actually signing these land leases, these 99-year land leases, or they probably got a little bit uncomfortable when you were going around poking and asking questions. What was it like to do the research for this book? Did you run into any uncomfortable scenarios where suddenly you know, you're in a meeting and everybody realizes that you're a journalist writing about this and they kind of close up? Or, or what was it like? Well, if you're in Africa, then you don't get into the meeting in the first place. Corporations are very reluctant to discuss their activities. Governments, by and large, don't want to talk about what's going on. They'll talk in general terms about their desire to have foreign investors coming to their country. But when you start getting down into specifics about what's happening to land, they don't really want to talk about it. So it's my main method of getting information was from international reports. So there are a lot of agencies looking at these at an international perspective. And the local people, you know, on the ground, the people who actually know who's moved in on the land, who's taken over, and the kind of pressures that they're putting on people. So I did most of this at the international level, talking to people in, in the city of London and elsewhere, international agencies looking at these issues, and the very local but within individual countries where the land grabbers are working, very difficult to get information. I'm wondering what it's like talking to the actual international investors themselves. Do they have a positive outlook on this? They think they're helping people, you know, feeding their countrymen. What do they say? Well, the ones that are willing to talk certainly do believe that. And some of them, I think, genuinely do believe that their investment will do good. And in some cases, I'm quite prepared to concede that it would. In Liberia and other places, you know, I went to see clinics and schools and, and hospitals and so on that were built or largely funded by the corporations moving in those areas. And they were investing in their communities. And certainly some companies that expect to be there for the long term, perhaps they're growing crops that take several years before they're harvestable, should and will invest at some level in local communities. They'll build roads, they'll encourage farmers to keep a plot themselves, perhaps, as well as working on the plantation. So there are, there are good things that can happen. Oddly enough, actually, oil palm plantations socially can be some of the better ones because you know they're expecting to be there for 30 or 40 years, perhaps. So they can't just sort of rush in and rush away again. Perhaps the worst companies tend to be the ones that are growing wheat crops or maize or something where it's an annual crop. They just come in, plant the crop, 
do the land and they can disappear tomorrow with their profit if they need to. What are the expectations of these investors versus the results that they're actually achieving? I'm wondering about the culture of work differences. For example, if you're a Western investor and you come into a country where the whole idea of the nine to five job doesn't really exist, what is that like when that actually occurs? And also some of these communities are encountering large amounts of money for the first time and receiving some huge injections of cash. How does that change the local dynamics? Well, socially it can change if you've got cash and you're not used to it. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't have cash, but it certainly changes the dynamic of the way societies operate. There are some big issues about that. In terms of the work ethic, well, people are very variable. If you're not used to having to work a nine to five, obviously that's quite hard. What you do find almost universally is that land grabbers, any foreign investor moving in, doesn't really want to employ the local people. They might employ a few women in nurseries or something of that sort, but they really prefer to bring in people from outside, even when there are a large amount of local people. So wherever I went, I would find that they would tend to ship in people from, you know, the other side of the island or the neighboring province or from elsewhere. So in Ethiopia, they were bringing in highlanders to go and work on the plantations in the lowland areas. That's because they think those people will be more reliant on them. If there are any arguments, they won't be able to call on their on their local community support and create greater trouble for the corporations. And they just, I think, feel that they would be under greater control. You know, so that, again, I think is an argument against the claim that land grabbers, when they come in and invest, are going to provide local jobs. Very frequently, they really very deliberately decide not to provide jobs for locals, but to bring in people from elsewhere. So is this to kind of help prevent unions from forming and people from yeah. being upset about, you know, the, the oh, conditions of their stuff. homes? Yeah, I think, I mean, people may want to form unions, I suppose. They will try and stop them usually. But I think it is more about, if you like, the the place of the locals within a community. So if the locals fall out with the corporation, then it is quite easy for them to go back to their villages and, if you like, stir up trouble. And before you know where you are, you have a mob of people at the factory gate. It's much less likely in the corporation's eyes, at any rate, for that to happen if they got migrant laborers that they can control and send home if they decide that they're causing trouble. You can't really send people home in the same sense if they live in the next village. But you can't prevent these things altogether. After I left Gambella, one of the the labor camps of one of the large land grabbers was attacked by local villagers who said they'd lost their land because of the land grabbing in April 2012. And they actually killed four or five people And then the the local police went out into the surrounding villages and started rounding people up and a couple of people were killed and and it got really very nasty for a while and a number of people fled over the border into South Sudan. So, you know, you do get widening social conflicts if there are disputes between workers and the land grabbers, even though under those circumstances, most of the laborers were being brought in from elsewhere. Even if you bring in labor from outside, I don't think that means you don't get conflicts. I'm wondering what your view on philanthropy was as you went through this journey. Were there cases where a philanthropic organization came in and wanted to contribute to farming or the development of the economy in a developing nation, and then it ended up turning into a really negative scenario for the people who live there? 
yes, these things can happen. Usually philanthropic activities are fairly small scale and usually remain small scale and are generally rather better for that. But they tend not to scale up to be the big land grab kind of operations. And if they're well run, they also maintain control in local hands. So they are the benign face of foreign investment. And I would encourage much of that that goes on. But there are other areas that give more concern. I became concerned about what I termed green grabs, environmentalists coming and wanting to protect nature and protect wild areas and protect ecosystems and engaging activities which are really not very dissimilar from the agribusiness land grabs, basically taking over land, setting down rules by which locals could use, say, a forest, whether they could hunt in there or whether they could go and gather fruit and so on in the forest. But basically taking over land from local people and not trusting local people to manage the land. And they were causing conflicts. If you're sitting in a village in Africa, it may not make much difference to you whether an agribusiness coming, is coming in, taking over your land, throwing you off the land, maybe offering you a job or not. And an environmental group coming in and doing the same thing. So while environmental groups have sometimes become better at thinking about these issues and trying to work with local people, not all of them have done. And many of them are really quite cynical about the ability of locals to look after their own wildlife and really believe that they should be in charge. The other thing that's happened is quite a lot of private green grabbers, if you like, rich people who've decided to buy up large amounts of land in Tanzania, South Africa, and some places in Africa which are very rich in wildlife and use them perhaps as tourist resorts or otherwise try and have a money stream from investing in protecting the wildlife. And all these projects, while philanthropic to some extent in intent, can still cause nasty conflicts, which in the long run, in my view, are going to be bad for the wildlife as well as the people. So people have to be very careful even if they have philanthropic intent. It's a difficult matter taking over other people's land. So I could put money into a carbon offset and think that, oh, I'm offsetting all of the CO2 that I'm emitting from my recent flight, and then it ends up going into something that's like these land grabs that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's very true. If you think about it, if I'm not saying that none of these carbon offset projects can work. Some of them will work reasonably well. But if you think about it, if you're going to be sure as a manager of that carbon offset project that carbon is genuinely being kept in that forest that somebody's invested in, you're going to have to take quite a lot of control of that forest. You're going to have to have total management control of that forest. And that inevitably means taking management control away from the tribes or the people that were living there before. So tensions are going to arise. Now, they can be managed better or worse. You can make sure that funding gets to the local communities and that they can invest it in community projects and so on. I'm not saying that things can't be done better or worse, but there are certainly big issues to be confronted. And I think if you or I are investing in a carbon offset project, I think we need to do a little bit of work to find out who the people are behind these and whether they are cognizant of the issues raised, because otherwise carbon offset projects are going to be seen as just another piece of land grab, just another green grab, just another excuse for turning a forest into an internationally tradable commodity. And I say, if you're a villager, it may not make much difference whether the commodity that's being traded is carbon credits or timber. 
you were talking about these very rich families buying up land in, in uh, South America or in areas of Africa and setting up either retreat centers or something. Did you run into any families setting up like plan B sites in case of global supply chain disruptions or these food riots that we were talking about earlier? Where Were there people buying up or doing land grabs specifically for something like that? Well, there are a few religious groups that tend to do that kind of thing. The Moonies have taken over some quite large areas of the uh, Pantanal wetlands in Paraguay and Brazil, really quite large areas of land, which they see as a sort of perfect paradise where they can retreat to if things get bad in the outside world. And there are some other religious groups that have been persecuted in various places and have kind of set up fiefdoms in remote parts of the world. I saw some uh, Mennonites in Paraguay who have large areas of land out in the Chaco forest. And there are various other groups around the world that have done similar things. So whether their uh, motives are sort of religious fears about a kind of Armageddon day or whether they're about some kind of environmental apocalypse or a breakdown of global order and global trade, there are a number of groups that kind of feel happier if they grab some land so they can know that they can feed themselves. I wouldn't say that's the dominant reason why land grabs are going on, but it feeds away in the back of people's minds, that sort of sense of, you know, what if the world went really badly wrong? Well, if we got the land, at least we could feed ourselves. So in closing here, I just wanted to explore a little bit with you what you think the role of media in telling this story is and how do you think that in the future we're going to be able to feed all the people that are going to be on the planet? Do you think that their people are going to starve? Are we going to have a lot of that Malthusian correction? How are we going to be able to survive with the amount of people we have currently on this planet into the future? Well, I'm an optimist on that, actually. I think we can. We use a lot of land that we could be growing food on to do other things, biofuels and, and you know, growing cotton and so on. So there's, you know, there's land around. We are pretty inefficient at the way we use our land very often. As I said earlier, smallholders could do a lot better than they already do. We waste a huge amount of our food, either on farms where it gets eaten by rats and pests or in the rich Western world, just throwing it away. We really grow enough food for 10 billion people or so already. I don't see a sort of fundamental constraint. Now, the way we share out the food, the way we manage our food system, now that's another issue. We're not very good at doing that. But it's not a fundamental constraint. I think we just need to do things rather better. And along with that, I think that means that we should respect people's land rights when we're thinking about food supply systems. As what the media can do, I think the job of the media is not to take sides particularly, but to raise these issues, to point out that there's no such thing as, as a kind of free lunch, if you like. When foreign investors go into countries, they're not moving into a virgin landscape where there aren't people. They're moving into a complex social and political landscape, and they need to be aware of that. One of the things that's come up, I think, in the last year is how little foreign investors are aware of exactly what's happening in the areas that they are being encouraged to invest in. They take, if you like, what the governments say at face value are that, you know, it's empty land, it's underused land, there's no problem, please come in or we need your investment. When the reality is usually that land is quite intensively used and certainly occupied by people who believe that that is their land and the conflicts that can arise. So I think by drawing attention to these issues, we will make investors much more wary 
are much more cautious about places where they invest in and where they don't invest. And that'll be a good thing. You know, investors, they're not just the bad guys who want to do bad things. They're sometimes ill-informed. They're sometimes just a bit naive. They need some information. So where NGOs are active in campaigning against groups, Greenpeace have been quite active in this area, Oxfam and a number of other groups, pointing out where they think things go badly wrong. I think that's all good. It's all part of educating us. For four or five years, perhaps the land grabbers have not had much attention on them. They've kind of thought that it was going to be easy, straightforward, bang, in we go, let's invest, get the profits out quick, everybody's happy. And it's going to be more complicated than that. And the more that we learn about that and the more that journalists and others can discuss these issues, then I think probably there'll be a new realism about land grabbing, more generally about foreign investment in developing countries. And that can't help but be a good thing. listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Gregor McDonald about how peak oil is changing the global macroeconomic picture. There are two huge problems facing populations and retirement funds, professional money managers, and endowments today when it comes to investing capital. The first is is rather intuitive and obvious, and that's the problem of slow growth. We have slow growth because the global economy has lost its access to cheap energy. In particular, it's lost its access to cheap liquid fossil fuel energy. And it was the era of liquid fossil fuels that allowed economies to grow well above trend compared to historical averages, which allowed for a fast buildup of capital and which uh, allowed for the professional money management industry to flourish and to provide returns as people moved from their working lives into their retirement phase of their lives. We've just got that basic problem of slow growth. And the second problem is that we've got the problem of income. The income problem comes to us through a couple of different ways. One is yields on government bonds are very low. So, for example, as late as 2007, if you had $10 million worth of assets and you invested them in two-year treasuries, you'd have income of about $420,000 a year. Um, that same $10 million today invested in two-year U.S. Treasury bonds produces about $22,000 a year. So this is not just a problem for individuals. It's a problem for university endowments. It's a problem for corporate pension funds. 
it's a problem for state retirement funds. If you're the state of California and you're trying to find a way to provide an income for retired firemen, retired teachers, uh, you know, retired administrators and state workers, this is a huge, huge problem. And it's also a problem for professional money management because in a world where central banks have stepped in to try to prime the pump of growth, we have this other unfortunate phenomena, which is that asset performance across asset classes are converging towards one, correlations becoming closer to one than it ever was before. And so if you're a professional money manager, one of your biggest problems is providing what's known as alpha. And alpha is this sort of jargon or lingo used in professional money management, which is you've got to give your client some asset class which doesn't correlate with other markets. And as you've been discussing with your other guest, one of the asset classes that has become favored and popular in the last few years is farmland or just land in general, but generally farmland. Farmland in particular because it has a yield and also it tends to not correlate with other assets. But of course, farmland's not liquid. It's not like a asset that you can move you know, billions of dollars into easily and then move billions of dollars out of easily. So this is sort of an overview of how slow growth and the separation that the global economy is suffering from that era of cheap energy, how it's flowed through to the problem of money management and, and people trying to use their capital creatively as they move into their retirement years. What happens to the idea of retirement and what happens to the idea of this whole uh, institutional system that we have grown to love and, and adore so long? You know, human beings and institutions, they, they try to take their change as slowly as possible. And, you know, one of my views is that one of the values and functions of status quo thinking is that it tends to put a break on the system. In other words, here we are five to six years after the financial crisis of 2008. We're in a huge phase transition, both in capital and economies, in labor, in wages, and access to energy. And yet you still find that individuals and institutions are looking to get back to normal. So the initial response to this problem, Seth, is that what a lot of capital has done in the reflationary era, which is this post-crisis era, it's it's done something called it's gone out the risk curve. So if you can only get 2% on a 10-year U.S. Treasury, if you can only get three-tenths of 1% on a short-term Treasury, you might want to go out the risk curve and buy income-producing stocks or equities, which are giving three and four and five, sometimes even six and seven percent dividend yields. Now, you're out the risk curve at that point. Your capital is more at risk. Remember, people coming up through the last century, they always had as part of their plan, as did the pension fund managers, that as you you would invest in growth assets between ages 20 and 60, and then you would invest in safe government bonds in your retirement. Now what's happened is that people who have retired, and I should mention that the entire OECD demographically is moving towards retirement. This is yet an additional problem for the OECD. So we have a tremendous amount of capital that's been built up in the Western world that's looking for a safe place to invest. It can't find it, so it's going out the risk curve. Now, 
in doing so, it is, to a certain extent, expressing normalcy bias. In other words, the capital is expressing the view that this is a hiatus from normalcy and will eventually return to normalcy. I don't think we're at risk for any sort of huge disruption of the system, although I do think we will have smaller disruptions and dislocations as the years go by. But I think what will happen is human beings will simply have to shift their baselines. They'll have to shift their expectations and they'll simply have to become happier with less. As I, I, I heard a, a very good uh, fund manager speak at an MIT energy conference a number of years ago, and he said one of the ways to get greater yield from your portfolio is to simply you know, draw a smiley face on the fact that your yield is lower and your capital gains are lower. You just, you just sort of force yourself to um, accept the idea that you're happier with less. And I, I know it, it's very comical to put it in those terms, but actually, that is what human beings will eventually do because they'll have to do that. Well, that's how you have more success in your dating game as well, right? You lower your expectations. <laughs> exactly. You, exactly. You can have a lot of success as long as you lower expectations. And of course, this relates to uh, happiness and research on happiness as well. Changing your goals to being either secure or satisfied can be a fairly effective method of sort of reallocating your emotional capital, if you will. You have this new uh, newsletter, TerraJewel, and you are using the quad as a measure of energy. And so let's talk about why you're using the quad and what that picture um, uh, paints when you start using the quad as a measure of energy and what's happened since uh, peak oil has occurred. Yeah, so in my new uh, monthly newsletter, which is uh, terrajewel.us, which is a monthly ebook that looks at the macro view of global energy supply. I kicked this publication off in April with an issue called Arbing Quads. And what I simply wanted to do was quantify some of the big structural shifts that have occurred over the last decade, and actually in particular over the past five to seven years in the global supply and demand for oil, and also to a lesser extent coal and natural gas. And what I found is that since 2005, which is both the year in which the OECD had its highs of global oil demand in the recent period, and it's also the year in which global oil supply began to flatten out and, and plateau. And what I found is that since 2005, the OECD, and that's just roughly, you know, Europe, the United States, and Japan, the OECD, OECD has given up 10 quads or 10 quadrillion BTU of uh, annual oil consumption. And unsurprisingly, since oil became more of a zero-sum game, where did that 10 quad show up? Well, it showed up in the developing world. Um, it's almost a beautiful, perfect match. The Western world gives up uh, 10 quads of demand and the uh, developing world picks up 10 quads of demand. What is 10 quads of demand and why quads? Well, in uh, more typical terms, what happened is the OECD gave up about 5 million barrels a day of oil consumption. But the reason I use quads, just to answer your question, Justin, is that quads is just a, a measure of energy units. And um, it's always good for those of us who do energy analysis to try to, you know, we, we can deal in barrels and, and we can deal in tons and so forth which are you know, either volumetric or, or weight measures. But it's always good to scramble back eventually for your work and, and the work you're doing for others to a, uh, energy measurements, whether that's terawatt hours in the global power grid or whether that's joules 
or in this case, BTU, British Thermal Units. So I use quads because different grades of oil can have different energy quantities in them. And of course, this is especially true with coal. And so when you're making a presentation and, and trying to explain these big, big structural uh, changes in global oil demand, and you're looking at natural gas and coal and oil at the same time, it's good to use an energy unit like BTU, which in this case, quadrillion BTU or shorthand is quads. So I think it's really interesting that the zero-sum game is playing out across um, the world. And as we shift away, as the, the focus of oil consumption kind of shifts away from the United States and Europe and starts moving more and more towards the eastern countries, towards India and towards China, and they begin upping their consumption of oils, um, we have this kind of rising out of the dark ages almost in these countries where uh, the fact that you're going from no energy to the presence of energy, which is a huge, huge difference. And I really, I really liked how you explained this idea, the shift from how a country like India or China goes from a, having no electricity in their lives to having this energy present in their lives. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the emergence of, of electricity in these, these places is affecting societies there. This is a phenomenon that has been almost entirely missed by Western energy analysts. It hasn't been missed by the best ones. There are a couple of investment houses and investment teams that have been on this for the past decade. There was a, a crew at Barclays for a while that was very good on shifting demand and shifting use profiles for oil. But what we've seen over the past decade is that as the new user of oil comes on in the developing world, that individual starts using perhaps just one or two liters of petrol a week, and that's truly life-transforming because they're going from the countryside, they're going from a community, they're going from a lifestyle where they had never used the miracle energy-dense substance known as oil. And suddenly they're using two liters a week, and they're putting that in a small motorized vehicle. It could be a scooter or they could be sharing a small car. And that's very transformative in the amount of work that they can get done for themselves and their family. But it comes with an additional dynamic, which means that their sensitivity to price is much lower than our sensitivity to price. If your income is rising enough that you can now purchase one or two liters of petrol per week, it really doesn't matter if that petrol is $3 a gallon or $5 a gallon or $6 a gallon. You're just using a small amount. So we're starting to see the same phenomena in terms of electricity supply also in the, in the developing world. And again, here's another place where Western energy analysts and the financial media tend to miss some of the nuanced dynamics that really wind up making a larger difference when you introduce those nuanced dynamics into much larger populations. So for example, here in the West, we have an ongoing conversation about how we must have baseload power, everyone else must have baseload power, and how could solar and wind and other renewable energy sources, which provide intermittent power, how could those possibly serve populations in a way that's effective or transforming of their lives? Well, that's sort of a Western bias. I mean, we, we expect electricity to be online 24-7, 365. If you had, you know, a typical person here in North America, they'll probably remember the three to six hours a year that they were, you know, without electricity. That's in an entire year. Well, a person in the developing world who has never had electricity before, and again, nice analogy here, 
to the person who never had oil use before. Do you think that their life would be transformed if you could give them some electricity between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. in the afternoon? Yes, I think so. And this is why technologies like solar are much more competitive and much more effective than many Western uh, energy analysts think they will be. So, yes, we still have a bias towards baseload power generation here in the West. We expect uh, nuclear power plants or coal-fired or natural gas power plants to be forming, uh, always forming the foundations of our power grid so that we can have always-on electricity. But in the developing world, where over a billion people are still unserved by electricity at all, solar energy would be a miracle for them. There's billions of people around the world that still use biomass as their primary heating fuel where they are just using wood cook stoves. And there's hundreds of millions of people who experience severe respiratory issues because they have to inhale the smoke that comes off of that wood burning uh, process that they use for cooking. And so access to a little bit of solar powered electricity every day makes a huge impact as you're bringing up. I'm really interested in the imagery of somebody who's driving a scooter and buying, you know, a few liters a week of, of fuel versus the person driving an SUV, say, in the United States, buying, you know, a hundred or several hundred liters of fuel per week. Why is it that so many Western analysts miss that? Is it because we're so stuck inside the idea of the status quo and we're so stuck inside the idea of there must be baseload power? Is that really the reason why they miss it? Yes, the energy use profile, in other words, the usage characteristics of the Western oil consumer or the Western electricity consumer, has become so sort of deeply embedded in our image of how our economy operates and in our images uh, of our expectations that it's just difficult for energy analysts and, and finance people sitting in a place like New York to imagine themselves living in another part of the world because in another part of the world, as you said, it's a zero to one problem. It's going from no energy to some energy, whereas we've luxuriated you know, over uh, a century or more in the one to end problem, in the incremental uh, addition of, of energy. You know, what you see, Justin, here in the OECD is you see this, again, this rather surprising, although not terribly unexpected, drop in oil demand here in the OECD. I did, I did mention the, the 10 quads of shifting of oil demand from the OECD over to the non-OECD. We've talked about what it's like for them, but it's pretty amazing to see Americans hammer down their oil usage every single year over the past five years. And it just it just keeps going. It's really incredible. And it's it's had a lot of effect on the amount of pollution that we produce. It shifted our expectations in terms of how we're using public transportation. I talked about use profiles. You see a lot of families and a lot of households around the country. It's not so much that they've given up their cars, but maybe they've given up one car. They've gone from two to one cars. But they've really changed the way they use cars. This is like a big structural change that's sort of happening quietly, but it really has a lot of implications for electric vehicles. It has a lot of implications for how we expect to use oil and how we're using automobiles. As I've said, we are essentially and fundamentally changing the way we use oil-based machines, in this case vehicles. We're starting to use them less for distance and more for power. 
as someone said recently. So what you're saying, Gregor, is that it's the end of the road trip, but let me use that car, you know, to go pick up some furniture, to pick up canned goods, you know, my gross weekly groceries a week. I'll use it less for running around and going long distance. I'll use it more as a power tool, if you will, to get work done. As we just mentioned, the uh, average person in the United States has been used to this access of seemingly unlimited energy for so long. And so now as the world is beginning and continuing to feel the effects of peak oil, there's this continued uh, media outreach of people trumpeting how the U.S. can be energy and oil independent in the long run and continued media that's, you know, happy smiley faces saying, you know, we will never run out of oil. But from your perspective, you're looking at the peak oil situation and saying the world is behaving exactly like how one would expect uh, to peak oil. Can you describe that a little bit? The world is operating and moving forward and making decisions in such a way that is exactly the way in which you would expect in a domain of, of peak oil. It's true that in the last 24 months, the global oil industry has been able to add about 1.7, uh, maybe 2% of extra uh, oil supply. And this is after a seven or eight year period in which global oil supply was bumping up constantly each year, year after year against a ceiling. However, the price of this new oil supply is much, much higher. It costs a lot more to bring this oil supply on. And because the mar this is known as the marginal cost of bringing on the new barrel of oil, because of this, the price of oil is much firmer, much sturdier at this upper level of, we'll call it $100 a barrel. So for example, in the futures market, but let's say you're a person who thinks there's no such thing as peak oil and the United States is producing a lot of new oil and eventually oil prices will go down. What I would suggest to that person is go find a futures trader in the global oil markets who's willing to commit to sell oil two to three years from now for say like $60 a barrel or even $50 a barrel. And you won't find that oil trader in the global futures market willing to take on that obligation to deliver oil at $50 or $60 a barrel two or three years from now because that trader knows that the global industry cannot provide a barrel of oil two or three years from now at $50 or $60 a barrel. The global oil industry, which is very nicely produced new supplies of oil here in, in North America. That's nice, but it really doesn't do a lot considering that the rest of, for example, non-OPEC supply, these are countries like Brazil and Mexico and uh, the North Sea and other countries, non-OPEC supply you know, continues to decline. So a lot of this new oil from North America, and it's really the United States, has been somewhat neutered, if you will, by declines elsewhere. So when I say the world is operating exactly as you would imagine it would in a domain of peak oil, what the world is doing is it's building whatever new economic growth can be built and created in this slow-growing world. It's using the power grid to perform those tasks and services and to get energy. It's not really using oil for new growth. I mean, it's, it's somewhat axiomatic, that that's the case. I mean, you, if you're in a world of roughly flat or, un, or, or of flat oil supply, or the oil supply is undulating a little bit, it comes up a little bit, it drops back, it comes up, it drops back. You're in that in that world. It's somewhat axiomatic 
that you can't use oil to fund new economic growth. You're going to have to use other energy resources. So, yeah, I mean, the data is pretty clear. Since the oil shock and since we moved into this era of roughly flat global oil supply, the growth in the demand for global electricity in terms of terawatt hours has been steadily plugging along at about 3.4% per year. So, you know, we're at something like 22,000 terawatt hours per year as of the most recent data for global electricity demand. And that trend is probably sustainable for some time as we bring on more coal, more natural gas, more hydropower, and now solar and wind. I'm thinking also of the hurricane that wiped out a bunch of uh, refineries in the Gulf and, and made oil prices spike across the United States. How do we deal with these kind of situations when oil prices go very, very high, very quickly, and the timeline for these kind of adaptations become very, very sped up? What, what happens to an economy that very quickly has those timelines bunched together? Your question very much gets to an ongoing conversation that I'm having with a lot of my colleagues, fellow energy analysts, fellow energy journalists who, who produce a lot of material for um, various newspapers and online publications, people who do consulting work, people who do a lot of the work that I do, which is sort of blending energy analysis together with the economy, because that's my, that's my basic model. Economies are subsets of available resources. And I've started to voice an idea in this regard that some of my colleagues disagree with, and, and that is as follows. My view is that the acute phase of the oil shock, okay, is behind us. That, in other words, that moment or that period of time which we hit in 2007 to 2009, that moment was created by everything that was emerging from the beginning of the new new millennium. The, the new millennium begins and the OECD has very cheap oil and everyone thinks that life and economies are going to be normal and it takes about five to six years and oil you know, starts to reprice and everyone thinks that oil's not repricing and that oil won't maintain its repricing. All that analysis is incorrect and the Western world goes into an oil shock, an energy shock, which tends to dovetail with, with the bursting of the, of the credit bubble. And again, some of my colleagues disagree with me on this, but I have to say it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of obvious if you reduce your demand for oil, then you're less vulnerable to oil. It's not that you're not vulnerable to oil. It's just that you do sort of axiomatically become less vulnerable to oil. And that's where the OECD is right now. So higher oil prices now function not so much as a trigger for another financial crisis, they function more as a cap, more of a, rather than an acute uh, shock, more of a chronic sustained cap on growth that never seems to get better. You know, and this is, I think, what the central banks are dealing with. The years go, you know, the months go by, the years go by, wages don't grow, jobs don't grow that fast, the economy just never really seems to show any indication it's going to get back to trend. Uh, getting back above trend seems like a, a real pipe dream. And it's this cap on growth from oil, which is also a place where energy transition is taking place. Now, um, to take the other side of this cue, some of my friends and colleagues who agree with me we tend to agree on, on a slightly different idea, which is that it may seem bad 
the way things are now, but actually it could be a lot worse. We could be more in an acute phase of crisis, at least in this chronic, sluggish, stagnating phase. Energy transition occurs at the margin, solar and wind power gets added, oil demand gets shifted to the developing world. Why not? They use it more efficiently than, than we do. As we discussed earlier, they just use a couple of liters. We were blowing, you know, we were blowing our minds out you know, on 50 or 100 gallons a week. I mean, that, that wasn't good for anybody either. You see that in the CO2 production from energy consumption here in the United States. We're back down to 1998 levels. For students of ecological economics, you have to love the correlation between CO2 production and energy consumption, right? I mean, CO2 production is back to roughly 1995 levels. Guess where oil consumption is here in the United States? Back to 1995 levels. So, the really bad part is behind us, and now it's sort of, <laughs> it's the sucky part. You know, this is like the sucky phase, and it's just going to be sucky for a while as we move through energy transition. Yeah, and so many people on both sides wanted the either spectacular flame out of the global economy or some kind of solution that comes along like cold fusion or fusion. We didn't get either. We got instead this kind of long, grinding, slow energy cap on growth. And one country that has been stagnating for a long time is Japan. I wanted to talk about what Japan is doing right now. The Abenomics experiment is playing out. And what we're seeing is a real impact on the way that Japan's economy uses energy. They've lost a lot of nuclear power, a lot of energy in their economy since everything that happened with Fukushima. Could you talk about that for a little bit? The case of Japan is going to produce the seminal white paper on ecological economics in, in the years ahead. It is just the most beautiful, perfect case of what had been a wonderful economy that grew up in the energy abundance era. It had no domestic uh, energy of its own. But that didn't matter because the post-war uh, Japan trade or arbitrage, if you will, was source foreign energy at a very cheap price, bring it to our island. We'll use that energy very efficiently. We'll fashion wonderful high margin products for export and we'll bank the profits from that from that trade. Japan provided to the world uh, wonderful consumer products and still does through the post-war period. However, when their catastrophic earthquake uh, occurred and a lot of their nuclear power grid went down and, and they've kept it shut down as they go through kind of a uh, a technological review process, but it's also a cultural review process about the risks of nuclear power to Japan. What's happened is that Japan has lost 30% of its domestic power supply. Another way, we'll put that in terawatt hours terms, it lost about 300 terawatt hours of power per year, and its nuclear power grid is currently offline. So what have they done to make up for the loss of that energy? Well, they've kind of had to go back to where they were in pre-war times or, or just early after the war, they're importing a tremendous amount of oil, uh, importing a gargantuan amount of LNG, that's liqui liquefied natural gas, and they're also uh, increasing their imports of coal. This all occurs at a time when we have a change in government and the government is very frustrated as the populace is with 20 years of deflation and they decide let's devalue the yen 
on top of all this to try to get the economy going. And it's a little bit of a Faustian bargain, if you will, because you're cheapening your currency. At the same time, you need to use that currency to buy all your raw goods to make the products like you always did for the last 50 or 60 years. So it's not just oil and energy products that Japan has always imported. It imports copper, it imports iron ore, it imports lumber, it imports all sorts of stuff from around the world. To give listeners an idea of how difficult this trade is, if you look at the most recent trade data, uh, which uh, looks like April, Japan exported 5.8 trillion yen worth of goods, consumer goods. That's all their cars and electronic devices and everything they exported to the rest of the world. But their energy imports cost 2.4 trillion yen. And that's just, you know, that's just the month of April. So what we've seen is that over the last year, the cost of imports to make all their goods for export has risen dramatically, but even their exports haven't really begun to take off yet. So this Abenomics plan, which a lot of, again, back to the Western economists, they're so excited about Abenomics that I, I think even Paul Krugman used the phrase, this could be the first step to a much brighter future. What I see in Western analysis, it's going to be great. It's going to work. They're finally doing what they should have done 20 years ago. It should, you know, break the bonds of deflation. But I think a lot of Western analysis doesn't really dig into the details and explain how you actually get from here to there in a step-by-step -step basis. So as you can imagine, I, I'm very keenly watching the Japan story right now. Now, Japan recently, the large amount of energy that they've, they've lost for their country has, has been huge. In your article, you mentioned that California also has a... Uh, a large nuclear power plant as well. The San Onofre power plant in California, there's a lot of, lot of uh, similarities between those two. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how Japan has tried to make up for that power a loss in, in, their, in their country? Well, you know, just, just briefly, I think, you know, nuclear power is, is a great example of how complexity itself now has a much higher cost. It has a much higher economic cost. If you look at a, a power plant like San Onofre, many power plants in the United States were built a, a generation ago. We have an aging fleet of nuclear power plants here in the United States. And I, I would really advise those who want to understand the complexity of nuclear power to look into the details of what happened at San Onofre. This was a, a situation where critical parts of the power plant were aging and had to be replaced. To replace these parts, you design them with computer-aided software and you conduct all your calibrations and then you, you fashion the new parts and you install them. And what happened at San Onofre is that some of the calculations that went into the software design were just slightly off. I mean, I'm talking about very small calib fine calibrations that were off just a little bit. And within, I think, about three to six months, that showed up as parts that were beginning to malfunction. Well, that whole process cost millions and millions of dollars just to try to get the plant back up again with its parts, then it had to shut down again. So what Japan is, has uh, discovered with their, their nuclear power supply is that what really killed the nuclear power grid in Japan was not so much the tidal wave, Okay, I mean, the tidal wave that the buildings withstood the tidal wave, but nuclear power plants in Japan, as elsewhere, need a 
source of electricity that is outside of themselves to keep certain critical functions going, especially with regards to waste. You know, this was sort of the big subject of my essay in, in the most recent issue of TerraJewel.us, the June issue, which I titled Solar's Rise, Nuclear's Demise. I, I think what we're seeing in both Japan and California is that, yes, it's difficult to lose your baseload power, especially if part of that baseload power is composed by nuclear. But look, even a country like Japan, which is challenged and stressed for available extra land, because it's a fairly large population on a small island, it actually has a tremendous quantity of built stock. It has a tremendous amount of, of building stock. And I see that other analysts are pursuing uh, some of the same avenues of inquiry that I have, which is that Japan has so much rooftop acreage, right? Okay, it doesn't have a lot of green grassy field acreage, but it has a lot of rooftop acreage that can be used for solar. So while it may seem like a Herculean task to replace the loss of Japanese nuclear power with, with solar, okay, incrementally over time with the addition of other sources like wind and so forth, Japan could make up for some of that loss. But I, I have to admit, Japan is in a very tough spot. It's in a tough spot energy-wise. It's in a tough spot with its currency. It's in a tough spot trying to, again, return to normal, the normal that it enjoyed in the post-war period. That was a wonderful period for Japan. And uh, they're finding that getting their way back to normal like it is for everyone else uh, in the world. We just can't seem to find our way back. Moving into our, our last question for you, you were talking about how Japan is trying to get back to this idea of normal that it had in the post-war period, and there's really no easy way to do that given their energy and economic and demographic constraints. And so um, what does this say for nuclear power as a whole globally? And I wanted to tie that question into the whole question of carbon emissions and what is happening in OECD nations. We've had several decades now of uh, serious discussions on carbon emissions and what to do about them in the glowing, uh, growing climate crisis. But now we see that in the United States, as you brought up, we're falling back to levels of greenhouse gas emissions in the early 90s uh, levels because of these energy constraints. What do you see as far as trends developing there? And what do you think the future is really of climate policy in that area? Well, I feel very sympathetic to the current generation of thinkers and observers and analysts who really want to see a new age of nuclear unfold. Many of the people who are big believers in nuclear power are, are scientists. Uh, they're people of, of vision. They're people of broad scope in their views. And of course, they want to see a nuclear revival because nuclear provides uh, baseload power. It provides a tremendous amount of power. And it has, you know, it doesn't have zero uh, CO2 emissions because there's the construction phase and so forth, but it, it is a tremendous solution. However, unfortunately, unless there's a breakthrough innovation in nuclear power, which would perhaps we need to change the scale and make it smaller scale. Perhaps we need to somehow make it more robust so that it is not a feature of a more tightly coupled system. Unless we can have those breakthroughs, what you're going to find is that simpler technologies, which appear to offer less power, like solar, okay, which appear to offer less power, they confer other benefits in terms of simplicity, 
in terms of fast completion times, you're just going to find that other sources of power are going to move ahead. When it comes to policy in this regard, I'm a little bit concerned for the climate community and the climate folks at this point in time from the standpoint of political dynamics. Because I fear that what's going to happen is that Western leaders in the OECD, Paris, London, Washington, sometime in the next year or two or three, they're going to kind of get up at the lectern and they're going to say things like, hey, you know, why do we need to deal with carbon taxes? Why do we need to even have climate policy at all? Look at how much CO2 we've already taken out of our economies. Look at the decline in, uh, you know, million metric tons of CO2 production here in the OECD since 2005. In fact, what I find incredible is that the United States, which of course never adhered to Kyoto, right, and never adhered to the Kyoto terms, the United States unwittingly, without really having affected any notable policy, the United States is actually not that far off the mark from hitting some of those older previous Kyoto targets simply because it has so dramatically reduced its oil demand and of course it's dramatically reduced its coal consumption as we switch to natural gas. And again, this is without carbon tax or anything really going through Congress. You know, the one thing I would say that you could credit the United States with, and you're seeing this a lot now, is green lighting those big mega solar projects in the American Southwest which is something that we just should have done years and years ago. I mean, the amount of daylight hours in the American Southwest is, like any desert region around the world, is pretty astonishing. So now that we're greenlighting those, those projects, you know, we're going to see a lot more solar energy coming into U.S. US supply. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the conversation here in the Western world about CO2 policy at a time when – because of our cap on growth, right, and because of our stagnant economic growth, and because we're using less coal and oil, it's going to be interesting to see how that conversation plays out. I'll, I'll venture a prediction. What future conferences, global conferences, will have to think more about is what to do in the developing world, what to do in the non-OECD, because that's where coal remains fully embedded. I, I think that's going to be where the conversation shifts. And for people who want to follow your commentary and to follow your take on this conversation as it moves forward, how can people do that? My monthly newsletter is called terrajoule.us, and that's T-E-R-R-A-J-O-U-L-E dot U-S. And um, you can just visit that website, and you can uh, buy each, uh, take each monthly issue as it comes out, or uh, take a look at the back issues. Um, my uh, first issue was, uh, as I mentioned, covered the shifting use of global fossil fuel energy. And this most recent issue really takes a look at solar and, you know, the really the very significant uh, contribution that I think solar is going to make by 2020 to the global power grid.
And that closes out our conversations with Fred Pierce about land grabs and Gregor McDonald about global energy and how it's affecting our financial picture, as well as totally changing the distribution of energy and why nuclear power is on its way out and ways of generating electricity like solar power are really providing benefits in terms of, of simplicity in relative terms. But let's go back to Fred Pierce's conversation because he was talking about how there could be 200 million hectares, that's 500 million acres, an area roughly the size of Western Europe that is falling under these contractual arrangements and agreements that are making up the land grabs. And it's fascinating to me that all of these financial firms are going around saying, we're going to make a killing on overpopulation and die off. Shit's hitting the fan. Uh, we're going to make a ton of money. Well, it's good to know that we are, you know, our, our democratic and capitalistic systems are working so well that uh, we can we can make do <laughs> and make money when, even when people are dying off across the world. There's mass starvation and hunger. You know, it's been the case ever since the dawn of privatization of land and that, that land is one of the only resources that is extremely scarce in its in its value. I mean, you can always make more money, but you cannot make more land. Land is is here to stay. And so it makes sense to, to invest in these properties and invest in land as a as a investment option because it's not going to go away. Another thing that's not going to go away is the fact that people are hungry and people need to eat. I think it's wild and crazy, though, that a country, a sovereign nation would sell its property that is arable land for its its people while its its own people are, are starving in the streets and, and and hungry and they're selling land that they can use to feed their people and to another country for money it just kind of speaks to the kind of corruption that we're dealing with yeah and a lot of the theme of this episode has been about these big global trends and changes that really do just go so far beyond what any of us can seem to do on the local level and it, it's really scary to think that in some of these countries there are foreign investors who have first access to water in the case of droughts. And we've seen with climate change, heavy droughts in um, in East Africa and places like Ethiopia. I was just reading recently that a group of scientists have verified that those droughts, uh, really severe droughts from a few years ago in Ethiopia were very clearly uh, linked to climate change because of their severity. And to think that these sorts of events are going to become even more common in the future and that the investors from countries like China that have bought up Ethiopian farmland are going to get the first access to water. That is really terrifying. It really is. And it's kind of scary to think that a government would just disregard its its responsibilities in favor of selling its land. Yeah, and that's why it's so important what uh, the things like people in Turkey are doing right now, trying to resist that neoliberal dogma that really wants to financialize everything from public space to food to energy. And the financial system is set up to produce scarcity and profit off of it. So I'm not surprised that uh, the stock market prices are so high. In fact, I would actually be willing to bet that even as global economic and financial difficulties play out, financial markets are going to have the potential to do quite well and to stay at quite high levels because they're really, in a lot of ways, just a metric, a, a number that you can put on the level of global scarcity in many ways. I know it's not an exact proxy, but I see so many ways in which the level of profits that corporations and how scarcity is increasing. And so let's say you're a company like Monsanto and suddenly there's uh, you know food shortages. Well, well, what you're going to experience are big rises in food prices 
cases, and you're going to do quite well as a company, most likely, um, especially if you can develop some genetically modified uh, organisms that do very well in scarce water environments. So those are just some examples of these perverse incentives that are built in. And if the financial system exists in any way like it does now in 10 or 15 or 20 years, it's only going to increase in impact and desirability uh, for farmland as an investment as population pressures grow even more. And it's all part of that catabolic collapse dynamic that John Michael Greer has talked about on our show and elsewhere, uh, where the system really feeds on itself on the way down. And, and we really are geared with our financial logic to profit from our own demise on the way down, which is really scary. Because of the disconnect, because of the fact that you don't actually have to see the, the people who are starving in the other countries whose land that you're using to grow that food, because you don't actually have to see the person whose resources that you're using when you burn incredible amounts of fossil fuels. It, it helps with that disconnect because you don't have to actually hold their hand or see, or see their face. And that just takes me back to an article that was making the rounds uh, a few months ago, about nine months ago, and it said that we are one year away from global riots, complex systems theorists say, and I'm looking at this particular headline on Vice, but I've seen it elsewhere. And they were referring to a 2011 paper by researchers at the Complex Systems Institute where they were looking at food price indices, how they went up past critical thresholds, basically people rioted everywhere. And um, you can just type that into Google. We are now one year away from uh, global riots. And it's really starting to show. You can see how in Brazil and you can see how in other places that have a large number of people who are extremely disenfranchised from having access to energy and food, they're rising up because the misery is just becoming so terrible. And a lot of that has to do with droughts and food shortages that have stacked up over a period of time, but also has to do with policies of quantitative easing that cause commodity prices to rise. And it has to do with the financial sector, as we talked about today with Gregor and with uh, Fred Pierce, how there aren't areas for returns like you used to get. So to serve that global money that needs to have returns to meet pension expectations and institutional foundation needs, uh, you have to put it somewhere. And one place to put it is in farmland and food because more investment that drives into it, that just uh, drives prices up even more because uh, other people see, hey, a smart money has gone into that. So now we're going to throw our money in there too. Recently, I was at the Biophysical Economics Conference in Burlington, Vermont, presenting some of the work that I'm doing for my PhD. And one of the uh, speakers at the conference was talking about wood in Africa as an energy source. And we were speaking with Gregor about this a little bit, but he was saying that roughly 90% of the wood in Africa is harvested directly for fuel, uh, a lot of it for heating, for food cooking. And he was driving through these uh, reserve forests in Malawi and Zambia and was seeing whole areas that were supposedly protected just being cut down and they had been harvested. And so what Gregor's talking about is very important because if those areas can have access to just a little bit of solar power for cooking, it means that they don't have to cut down these massive forests. And it's really scary and grim to see these big trends of deforestation because you realize that with growing populations, it really can't go on for that much longer um, in, in terms of harvesting the trees in order just to cook. I really liked his idea about the zero to one idea, the fact that going from no power to having having just a little tiny bit of power is a really big deal. I mean, for many people, just having a light bulb on at night can change can change a whole society. I mean, a kid being able to read a, a textbook, to be able to study it at nighttime and do homework can really change the whole path of a village. I mean, bringing that kind of tiny bit of power 
through a solar panel, through some kind of uh, alternative energy source in a village can really change and turn around an, an entire part of, of a small village. It was really funny because we sat down to record our episode today and power went out because of storms that were rolling through your area, Seth. And I was just typing into the Evernote notebook for this episode how Gregor McDonald was saying that in North America and in Western Europe, you might remember those few hours every year that you are without power. But that's the reality of every day for so many people around the world. That's absolutely right, Justin. And I had to brave some tornadoes, make it into my office to be able to record this episode tonight. So all you folks out there know the strife and the struggle that we at the Extra Environmentalists go through to bring you each one of these episodes. Absolutely. (laughs) So touching on a few news items before we close out today's episode, I was just looking at some information about food and food costs around the world in relation to our discussions today about farmland. And I came across this one that food inflation in Saudi Arabia hits 6.2% in a year-on-year basis, and they're accelerating quite dramatically. The single largest contributor to overall inflation in Saudi Arabia is food. Yeah. And we were talking with Fred Pierce about how Saudi Arabia is growing food by using their massive energy endowment to just pump water underneath the desert in order to grow food and wheat. You know, Saudi Arabia is growing wheat literally in the desert. They are, you know, doing dairy farming in the desert because they can use all of their energy resources to pump water in. And one of the things I learned about in Fred Pierce, in Fred Pierce's book, reading it, um, he talks about how Saudi Arabia is growing food and that they really are within a decade or so of exhausting a lot of their aquifers. And they always thought that they'd just be able to use their oil money in order to feed their population. But then in 2008, they weren't able to when food prices spiked. And so that's why they're going in and buying up food. And just think of the energy costs of pumping the water in for their population. They have 28 million people and the median age is 26.4 years. Hmm. Compare that to the median age of Germany, 43.7. And the median age in even, uh, say, France or uh, Canada, it, they're 39 and 40. So the, the median age in Saudi Arabia is roughly half of where we're at today. And that's where, uh, you know, like the UN gets its estimate for 9 billion people because the 9 billion people have really already been born in the sense that if all of the youth in the world have the average rates of babies that they have had, that they're parents have had in the past, then that will result in the 9 billion people that they're projecting for 2050. We've got one last story for today that I wanted to cover, but this one is from McClatchy and it says, with electricity and water in short supply, Egyptians grow tense. And it's all about how the situation in Egypt is getting much, much worse and how now the grid is going down quite regularly. There's uh, blackouts everywhere, mile long lines of trucks at, at gas stations in search of gasoline, Farmers lack power for irrigation. So the power shortages are leading to uh, food issues. And uh, both the rich and the poor are finding that markets are struggling to keep foods fresh and often closed for lack of power. And so basically, the, the fragile political situation there is being 
even further exacerbated by the food and water and energy shortages. And it really is that kind of uh, breakdown collapse scenario that we've discussed. This is on the heels of the Arab Spring where the Egyptian president promised to improve electricity and gas and water supplies. And he's really not coming through and people are once again getting upset. Well, it just shows how powerless the people who come into power after a revolution really are to deal with these basic issues. And if you read further further in the article, um, according to official figures, the national electricity consumption was projected to rise over the summer far beyond the amount of electricity that the country currently produces. And so when you get into these breakdown collapse scenarios, the official numbers can keep showing projections as far out as they want, but the reality is it can't be supplied. And there's some quotes from Egyptians in the article who are saying, you know, the fluctuating current is ruining my electric appliances. And if something gets blown, I'm poor and I can't replace them. And, you know, that's the situation where you just have these uh, this power grid that can't be regulated. And so it causes all kinds of crazy frequencies to run through power system. And then just everything in your house explodes and blows up. And you just have a government official sort of saying, just be patient, we yeah. apologize, it'll be okay, and people should just excuse us and we're doing our best. Well, I guess you, I guess you have to give them, they're trying their best, right? So that, what, what, yeah. what can you say? <laughs> yeah, and it's a long way from happening in the US or in Canada or in a lot of Western European nations where it literally gets that bad. But there are countries around the world that are experiencing the very cutting edge of breakdown. And it's really shocking to see it playing out. And I really think that in countries like Egypt, they had the the Arab Spring Revolution. That's really the first wave of what I see as the breakdown. And then probably following that, a few years later, um, we're going to see a much more violent uprising as these basic needs are not met and as food shortages get worse. But if we do have if we do have any listeners in Egypt who can tell us about the situation there, who are able to call in via Skype or through our Google Voice number, we really appreciate hearing about the situation. Is it as bad as this article makes it out to be, um, or is it not? I don't know. It would be really great to hear from someone on the ground. As in our previous episodes, we're going to post links to all the articles that we mentioned today, as well as other links from the conversation that we had. And speaking of listeners, um, we also have heard from some listeners recently. A huge thanks to Becky from Australia for donating to the show. She included with her donation a note that said, "Um, I really hope that we start to interview more women. There's a very noticeable lack of women's voices on this show. That is a very good point, Becky, and we really appreciate your donation, and we're going to ship off a shirt and some stickers to you in the very near future, but uh, that is definitely a big problem with our show. There's way too many guys on the show, and we need to do a better job. I had some interviews with some fantastic women lined up for interviews, and they all fell through earlier this year, so unfortunately, we're stuck with more guys at the moment, but but I shot some great video interviews with many of the female equal economists in Vermont. So those are coming soon on our video channel and we'll be putting some of those into our show also. We have a few new videos up on our website and our Vimeo channel that we'll link to in the show notes. And that was one with Dennis McKenna and also a video that I filmed at the Ecological Economics Conference in Vermont with Nate Hagens of the Post Carbon Institute. And I filmed a lot of videos there. And so we have tons of video content that we'll be rolling through in the next few months. And speaking Speaking of video, Justin and I will be attending the Reroute New Economics Institute Summit on building youth and student power for a new economy. We're going to actually be live streaming most to those uh, conference sessions there in New York. So be prepared to get a whole dose of 
new economics right to your computer or mobile device. I wanted to put a call out to our listeners for transcription services. We definitely need the help with transcription. So many of our interviews, people really want to read through certain parts of them. So even if you just want to do a portion of them, please get in touch. We really could appreciate the help. In addition, the transcription will help with the translation to other languages. We have a fantastic team over at Gorilla Translations who's been nice enough to help us with translating some of these videos and episodes into Spanish. And that has been a fantastic service that they have been providing. Uh, additionally, if you're in New York during the July 19th through 21st and would like to meet up with Justin and I, feel free to drop us a email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. Additionally, if you want to find more of these episodes, you can always go to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com where you can find a whole list of every single episode, blog posts, and videos that we post on a regular basis up on that website. Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, find us on Stitcher Radio, find us on SoundCloud where we put up every one of our little skits that we do. And just as a reminder, anybody who donates in the U.S., we are a 501c3 organization, and so we can offer you tax receipts for that. And now that I have a little bit more time over the summer, I'm working on our status with the Canadian Revenue Agency, so soon we'll be able to offer that to Canadian listeners as well. So again, I think in the end, this is not a matter of economics. It is really a matter at this point of ideology, of beginning to persuade large numbers of people living in the capitalist world that they ought to explore the alternatives. They will then discover that those alternatives have always been around. Danny Deadnettles out in Louisiana. He once again has come through with a fantastic beat. And this is an actual mashup of our last episode. He's put some music and he's added some some beats to it. And it's really, really good. So thanks to Mr. Deadnettles for taking to heart the fact that this is all Creative Commons licensed content. Take it out there, make some derivative works based on it, mix it up and put it into your creative work because it's really great to hear it and, and see it being used out in the world. That's what it's there for, exactly. We have a lot of people who've donated recently and have stickers pending in the mail. We just got a new round of stickers and these are our brand new die cut stickers, but unlike the last batch that was yellow, we now have green, the green spaceman coming along. That's right, Just We went through our whole batch of 500 stickers super, super fast and now we had to reorder. We got a thousand green stickers, so I think we're just gonna keep picking different colors and depending on when you donate, what sticker you get is gonna be the different color. So we might do like a neon purple one or a orange one. And if you have an idea of what color spaceman you'd like to see, send us a line, let us know, and we will try to make that happen as we move through the rainbow spectrum of spaceman. We would like to once again offer you a heartfelt thank you for listening to episode number 62. Thank you so much. Stay dry and watch out for the tornadoes. Out of graduate school, I just wanted to 
make a lot of money. That was the environmental cue I got to impress the ladies and buy a car and get an apartment. And I was always quick with numbers, so I figured I'd go to Wall Street. And a uh, fascinating place, very exciting. And I quickly learned that um, pressure to feel successful was based on the metrics of people around me. And if they made a big trade and made $10,000 commission, I felt all uh, the more pressure to sell someone something and get a commission, etc. Um, fast forward several years, um, I had billionaires as my clients, and I, I recognized um, pretty quickly that they were no happier than, than you or I. And I met several that wanted to turn 100 million into 200 million and then quit, and five years later they had 500 million. And it was more of a game and an addiction than actual uh, productive capacity. Uh, I made a lot of money, and I thought I would always make a lot of money, so I spent all my money um, taking bizarre trips and you know living large lifestyle and uh, about 12 years ago I figured out there's a problem with with all this and I started learning about environmental externalities the fact that we don't price biodiversity loss and, and climate impact and pollution into our market system and I, I started to feel very bad about that uh, I learned about resources because I was trading oil futures and such and I learned that boy oils not only gonna peak in my lifetime but it'll peak soon in the sense that it's going to become a lot more expensive. So I quit and I went and got my PhD in ecological economics um, and now I'm living on around $30,000 a year um, on a farm. I don't have a lot of savings but I'm surrounded by people that don't have high pecuniary aspirations. They're happy with nature hikes and, and playing with dogs and producing our own food and um, the key I would say is my girlfriend doesn't care about money. I don't feel pressure like sitting next to these guys in cubicles that need to make a million dollars a year just to cover their nut. I mean, I talk to some of my Wall Street friends that are, have five or seven million dollars now and they're worried about how to protect it. And they spend so much time worrying about how to protect it that they're not even enjoying their own lives. So I personally have come to the conclusion that the human economy is nothing more than transforming natural resources into dollars and we transform dollars into brain chemicals or feelings plus waste. And most uh, people on Wall Street just look at the dollar thing. They measure success in dollars. They don't look at natural resources as a finite uh, primary driver of our economy. And they don't realize that wealth isn't what they're really after. What they're after is the feelings that wealth gives them. I like the way you work it. Trump tight all day, every day. You're blowing my mind, maybe in time. Baby, I can get you. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be speaking with Gar Alperovitz about the next American Revolution. There's a lot going on that the American press and the international press really doesn't cover and I don't actually think has either the interest or the resources to cover at the grassroots level that suggests the kind of direction that might become a foundation of a new direction for a next America, American system. Then it's possible that uh, decay will continue, or even worse, it's possible the violence will occur and repression. But there is also a powerful trajectory. History is full of change. Revolution is common as grass in world history.
I hope you were all enjoying that neoclassical music that was entertaining us during our reception here at the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics reception here in Stockholm, Sweden. My name is, is Glenn Grunenwald. I'm the executive director of uh, the Institute for Failed Economic Paradigms. And as you know, we're quite influential in society. Recently, the, the Nobel Peace Prize has been making excellent, excellent choices with Barack Obama and the European Union uh, for establishing world peace. And so we thought, why can't the Nobel Prize in, in economics also honor uh, pieces of land? So I'm, I'm going to run through the runner-ups here for our Nobel uh, Prize in, in economics. And then I'll introduce uh, Boris Komatskalov, who is here from the Russian oil industry, in order to announce the actual award winner. Drumroll, please. And so the, the runner-up for this year's Nobel Prize was Abenomics for inflating ridiculous asset bubbles in, in a country firmly in the grip of, of deflation, introducing phantom wealth at record rates. The runner-up goes to Abenomics. And so now to announce this year's winner, I will defer to my colleague in the Russian oil industry, Mr. Boris. Mr. Boris, you may now announce the winner of this year's Nobel Prize in economics. Thank you very much, esteemed colleague. Uh, hello, my name is Boris. I come from Russia. I'm here to announce the very important economics Nobel Prize. This year's 2013 prize of Nobel goes to the farming lands of Africa. The farming lands of Africa not only have allowed foreign interests to come in and farm them and give their food to other countries all over the world, they have selflessly given away their farmland and food to countries all over the world who have lots of money. Africa farmlands have given a new investment vehicle for speculative interests and have made it possible for money to flow into countries that have not had economic investments in them for very long times. Thank you so much to Africa for helping us to perpetuate the illusion of growth and that they can go on forever and ever. And now to receive the award on behalf of the African Farlands, we go to Monsanto. Not the executive director, but Monsanto itself. We have transformed the corporation into a person using the advanced technology developed during Herman Cain's election years running. We have uh, been able to transform the Monsanto Corporation into an actual person, and he's here today to accept this award. Thank you, Boris, and thank you, people here in Sweden listening to me accept this award. I'm very happy to be incarnated into this genetically engineered, copyright-protected giant ear of corn in order to accept this award from you today. Now, as you know, the illusion of, of growth everlasting is very important to our economies, and that's why African farmland is so important. I look forward to future service in, in this area to the speculative investment economy. Now, please note pictures. My image is copyrighted. We will not hesitate to sue if we do find any other images of me anywhere. And please close your eyes and forget what I look like, because otherwise, if you remember for too long, we will sue you. Hey, why is there corn growing in my soup all of a sudden? Just ignore that. Why is there corn coming out of my lungs? <coughs> 
If you wait long enough, it'll come out of your ears. That's a feature. It's the cost of progress. <clears throat> so thank you very much. And I, I look forward to more service in the benefit of our share. <clears throat> I mean, humanity. Thank you. Thank you much, Mr. Monsanto. It's very wonderful to have your ear. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, remember that festivities this evening will be followed by a sack race. The theme of this year's sack race will be the same as every year's, the race to the bottom. Thank you, Boris. Thank you, everyone for coming we'll have complimentary ears of corn on the way out uh, for you to use in the sack race and coming up tomorrow it will be the nobel peace prize which i'll just give you a hint it's drones <laughs>